ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lion's Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, Cruess Studios and Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. Today our guest is 60s pop music authority, leading album reissuer, musician, DJ, and author, Andrew Sandoval. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. Your program is about to begin. All right, welcome everybody to episode eight of The Conduit, a podcast where I sit and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today, my guest is my longtime friend, Grammy Award-nominated reissuer of historic albums, author, DJ, journalist, songwriter, and professional musician, Andrew Sandoval. Andrew spent many years working for Rhino Records and Polygram, and has compiled and reissued classic albums by everyone from The Kinks, The Band, The Beach Boys, and The Zombies, to The Monkees, Harry Nilsson, Elvis Costello, and Big Star. Additionally, Andrew has toured playing guitar with ex-kink Dave Davies, managed the aforementioned Monkees, and published a book detailing their entire career. Andrew also hosts the weekly Come to the Sunshine radio show on LuxuriaMusic.com every Monday from 3 to 5. His encyclopedic knowledge and love of everything 1960s pop is just plain mind-blowing. Plus, he's got an impeccable sense of style, a dedicated follower of fashion, as it were. Andrew's also one of the most hardworking, generous, and exemplary humans that I know. So sit back, relax, and have a listen to my conversation with the one and only Andrew Sandoval. All right. Well, Andrew Sandoval, welcome to The Conduit. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Dan. Well, thanks for inviting uh, me and putting up with me all these years, you know? Oh, please. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to know you all these years, man. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to start by going back to when we first met in junior high school and I'd see you in town and I'd see you around uh, school and you just seem, you know, fully formed. You know, you knew what you wanted, you know what you liked, um, you had a sense of style, you just were driven at such an early age. I mean, you did your magazine, New Breed, that I'm holding in my hands right here. Um, the issue I have is from 1989, and you had interviews already with Andy Partridge from XTC and Davy Jones from the Monkees. Can you talk to our listeners here just about what it took to create a fanzine, um, you know, just from scratch, do it yourself? Well, um, I guess I didn't really have any other choice, I felt like. Uh, yeah. The main thing to think about now is how different communication is compared to 1986 when I started my fanzine. Yeah. I love talking to people about music, but even you know when I met you, we were in the same homeroom together in uh, yeah. junior high, and you were That's into great. the Stray Cats. And I That's was right. into you know uh, the Jam and Elvis Costello and Squeeze and all the stuff uh, yeah. that I'm still into, but. But, you know, we talked about music and we, we were friends, but we had, you know, so much in common. As time went on, we got other things that were mutually more interesting. Yeah. But it was we couldn't communicate or meet the other people who knew about the stuff we wanted to learn about yeah. uh, easily. What you can right. do today, you can say, hey, I'm interested in, you know, uh, Arthur Lee. And 50 people will say, oh, 
you should hear this, you should listen to this, or check this out, or I'm into that too, whatever. Then it was like you would go to a record store and some old guy would say, oh man, you know, either check this out or you're not ready yet or get out of here. (laughs) I was like, well, I want to communicate with people about music and talk about music and learn about it. And I think the only way I can do that is to do this fanzine. So I started doing that. I, I didn't really have the best writing abilities, but I learned Mm. by doing, and I could say the same of my entire musical career, (laughs) but you know, I, I was, from the time I was about four, maybe even earlier, I just was obsessed with music. You know, playing an instrument yeah. came even kind of later for me, but just reading and learning, you know, you you were with me in school. You know that I yeah. spent most of my time reading books and magazines about music, you know? I mean, yeah. and if that hadn't worked out, then it I had no choice but to try and make it work somehow. So right. luckily people, you know, took an interest in what I was doing because I was sincere about it, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Well, I mean, that came across, your sincerity, your passion for what you were writing about. Um, I mean, I think it was infectious. You know, when when you started talking about the Kinks and all these bands that I still love, I was like, oh, man, if Andrew likes them, I better check these guys out. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I learned about so many different great groups from you, including the specials, too, that we were just talking about before we started. So, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like just the love of something is going to there's there's no way for it not to spread and lead to things, because if you love something, you're going to meet other people that love it as well. And it's going to turn into something. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the hope, you know, and then you hope that the common interest will bring about something new, you know, it not just. The sharing of the fantasy of what we love, but yeah. that some new creative thing will spark off of that. And that's kind of the hope. And also you hope that it will sustain you in some way. And I know that that's some of what you talk about in your show is yeah. how to actually make what we love sustainable and not just to keep it going, but to keep us going too. I totally agree. I mean, what inspires us is ultimately going to inspire others because we're so passionate about it. And, you know, hopefully we make enough money to, you know, keep buying records and (laughs) (laughs) keep buying guitars and keep buying records. (laughs) Well, I know you, you know, you talk about wanting to meet other people with similar interests and, I know uh, you were the reason I got a job at Rhino Records in the in the late '80s. And uh, talk about working at Rhino Records for you, how it got started, and what you learned most from the cast of characters working there. Well, my path to Rhino was a really interesting one because I loved the Beatles growing up so much, and a friend up the street. We go. We both grew up in a place called Pacific Palisades, which is a really nice nice area to grow up in. Very, very gentle and innocent. You could walk into the town. There was a small town, all that stuff, but there was no record store. There had been a record store, I think called the Slippery Disc, yeah. but but my right, mom, we're, we're, we're not buying anything there. That's at full price. You know, call around to all the record stores and find out who is the cheapest copy of it in Santa Monica, and maybe I'll drive you there eventually. Yeah. So, so yeah. Or let's see if there's a coupon that we can get, you know, for the warehouse or something like that. So- sure. Up the street from me, there was a guy and he had a Beatles bootleg album. And it was 
it had songs on it or recordings or live recordings I'd never heard before. So it's like, I want to get that because I think I have all the other Beatles albums now. Yeah. And he told me about, or he told my family about a place on the old Santa Monica mall, which is now the mm. third promenade back then. Yeah. It was pedestrian mall, very sleepy place. They had this place called fabrics, you know, it's like a place where you get sheets and towels and stuff. But they had a, <laughs> electronics store there was like a radio shack called apollo electronics and okay. it had all normal radio shack type of you know cables and resistors and transistors and stuff but on one yeah. whole wall like the wall behind me they had racks um just like one lp piece like a display rack and it was all oh. bootlegs oh and wow 1976 and it was yeah. all bootleg albums and my parents took me there one day like on a weekend yeah. and they said you can buy one record you know, pick nice. out one record. So I bought one record. And then obviously, you know, one record is never enough. <laughs> so, never. So I wanted another record, but we went back there, but they had been busted because they were selling illegal records. Bootleg records are not legal. Yeah. And there was no more bootlegs for me. So eventually the friend, this was, you know, and time ran a lot slower then. So a couple of years later, this yeah. guy said, Oh, yeah, I found another Beatles bootleg. There's a store in Westwood called Rhino Records. Yeah. And you can go there and, and get one. So my mom took me to Westwood to Rhino Records and we asked them about Beatles bootlegs. And they said, Well, we don't have them in like a section. We put them, spread them out in the used bin. So, you know, you have to look for them. And right. any, you know, the, the FBI or the RIAA will have to look for them too. You know, they won't, it won't be <laughs> easy for them. So, right. I looked, I bought this Beatles bootleg called Watching Rainbows. It might still be up on my shelf over there. Um, <laughs> and that began my pilgrimages to Rhino, which was to get out there, you know, was the number two bus from Sunset and the Palisades all the way into Western and a long, long walk down West Coast. Yes. But yes. I was there increasingly and more frequently, especially in my uh, early teen years when I knew you and go yeah. there the NME and buy the latest British imports and stuff and, and see the, you know, John Lou selling his punk rock record. <laughs> yep. <laughs> PJD. JB and uh, Crouch and, and a bunch of people who all were, you know, friendly to me, but disappointed in my musical tastes uh, <laughs> and most other people's <laughs> and they're buying clear spot by captain Beefheart. Um, but eventually I met, uh, when I was 15, I met a guy named Gary Stewart who was working at the Rhino label, and we started talking about uh, some stuff like the undertones and mm. that emotion and some more current things. And yeah. then I met, through another friend of mine, Dave Jenkins, who's a big conduit of music, uh, I met a guy named Bill Inglot who was working at the Rhino label doing uh, reissues and doing reissues on the monkeys, which was something I was interested in too. Yeah. Uh, but the, getting the job at the store... I don't know. I must have hung around there long enough where they finally, they gave me a job right when I graduated high school at the same time as you. And yeah. um, I was working there for a few months and then they were looking for more uh, suckers. And I said, you know, we signed up for the same, the same deal. And I, I stayed through the beginning of 1990, but yeah. in the summer of 89 after high school and into 90, I got a, a writing job to do liner notes for a Monkees album for Rhino. And at the same time, the guy, Bill Inglot, who I did the writing job for, said, hey, you know, do you have any thoughts on how the, the record, what songs go on the record? He'd give me these cassette tapes 
It was yeah. CD and cassette. Um, they were phased out LPs at that time, and said, "I said, yeah, this this song should start it, and I think this should end it, and these are the songs I like on it." And I did the thing, and I ended up getting a, a co-credit from him. Oh yeah, for all that. And so once I had that CD, you know, I never let anybody forget about it. I basically went around to every <laughs> other place that I could, showing them, like, "Okay, I've done this." And yeah. that's the same thing I did with the fanzine. I mean, that's how I got the job with Rhino. The label was that I had examples of my writing. So, right. and they obviously didn't read any of it. They gave me, <laughs> <laughs> but they saw that I that I wasn't just you know interested in music. That I I would do things at a very very low price. So yeah, and you'd follow through and get the job done too. Right, for yeah. like fifty cents on the hot dog, which is why right. you know. <laughs> but um, no, it's so that's and that that was really other than their genius of putting together a, a lot of amazing compilations and turning people onto a lot of music and licensing in stuff and kind of paying attention to the neglected stuff. They were very good at finding interesting people to work there um, mm. at the label. Now the store itself had gone through a big transition and, you know, we were there when they were remodeling it. It had been this narrow store and then it was right. a bigger store. It was also the, the end of the LP era and yeah. CDs were sort of dominating and cassettes were a big, big thing. I remember stocking a lot of cassettes, but, but yeah. it was an easy time to work there. I mean, you know, um, you certainly heard music every day, but it was also the kind of place where the second you put on something that somebody older than you didn't like, you <laughs> would do a scratch and then, you know, would I got called into the back room the first day of my very first in-store play. <laughs> yeah. Growing up, you know, hanging out there for years and years. And then they're like, okay, I guess we got to let Andrew get an in-store play. All right, whatever. And, <laughs> and I swear, I know it sounds like, you know, oh yeah, that sounds a little too perfect. But literally I found a copy of the Beach Boys Pet Sounds was sitting there right in the used bin. I thought, okay, great. You know, wouldn't it be nice? Ding, de -de 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 you know, and like about halfway through the first song off and they called me in the back of me and said, listen, we want to fire you on the first day, but no more <laughs> crap in the store. You know, we had to let go. Of, I won't. I won't name his name because he's still alive and is around. Yeah. Uh, we had to get rid of him because he, you know, he played the Beach Boys. No, you know, that's it. So I get away occasionally with playing the zombies and a few other things that that passable to them. I not only had mine taken off, I had it taken off and thrown onto Westwood Boulevard. <laughs> exactly that's that's that was their big move that yeah. was that was their big mic drop of the time <laughs> they, they enjoyed that more than selling records and i think that that's hmm. maybe why you know that store uh inspired a lot of people but also um is left a lot of people very angry and upset but um, well it definitely taught me, uh, you know, that I didn't know everything and that it was better to just keep my mouth shut and listen and kind of figure out how to survive, you know? <laughs> right. But they had amazing stuff at that store. Like, you know, you're interested in, in reggae and I was interested in ska. And, but yeah, tons you know, of good reggae there. They had original Prince Buster 45s that his son had brought in and sold to them. You know, Scott had yeah. an amazing uh, scooter. Yeah. Scott, you know, Hinkley had an amazing reggae section. And and the world music section, which I still know very little about, but I yeah. know that we had people coming in all the time. And the world music section was was really supporting the store more than any of the other stuff. Uh, you know, it, 
you did have to sort of learn and respect that there was this whole world of music buyers and music consumers and listeners that was different than us. I always thought about that. I always thought like people weren't into the stuff I was into. They were into a lot mm-hmm. of other things. But I kind of have always liked that whole thing that it makes someone else happy. You know, it, it's not like I go to a restaurant and see a menu. It's like I only want the stuff I want, and I get angry that there's stuff on the menu that I <laughs> like that I'll never order. But right. there were a lot of music fans who were like that. Like, why does that exist? I yeah. bought that, or I don't like that. You know. Yeah. So I think I've always felt like when I've worked on records of artists who were not my favorite artists, because I got to work with a lot of my favorite artists, but I've worked on a lot of other things that were not top of my list, and I've yeah. really enjoyed those almost more because I thought about like, what can I do to kind of learn about that fan and tickle them with something that would make me happy if I were them. And that's really fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've done that unearthing so many just like unreleased gems that people haven't heard and found them. And it just, yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, I know like for the band reissues, for instance, there was just so much extra stuff on there that it was like, Oh man, I get to hear, Richard sing another, you know, take of this. And I get to hear Levon sing another take of this. It was just beautiful. Yeah, the band is a good example because I've really grown to love the band very much. And I actually, my parents had their first few records, I think the first three albums at least. I remember stage writing in the house and hearing all those records, but I wasn't that enamored of that stuff at the time because I was interested in other things. Uh, But when I got involved with that reissue, series around the year 2000 i listened to everything and then listened to all the session tapes and then was tracking down stuff and i was working with people like cheryl powelski who were really obsessed with the band and you know got to work with robbie robertson for many years on a box set and that was a great great education a great journey and i'm really proud that i got involved in that stuff and got to mix a lot of things like mix the alternate take of tears of rage that i think is almost better than the one that's on the album uh, yeah. the track and there's just a lot of great music that i got turned on to through that so have you heard that there's obviously that great gene clark version of tears of rage too that's beautiful as well yeah totally different but just beautiful as well it's yeah a great um, my friend growing up and your friend too matt letterman was huge yeah. into the birds and yeah. was trying to get me more into the birds and now i'm a, a bird maniac but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, we, we grew up around a lot of people who were really into music and a lot of people who are doing music still now, which is great. Uh, yeah. it's, it's that in itself is inspiring and really nice to think about all the creative people we went to school with and who were into yeah. it. Still doing it. Well, I, I think about all these amazing reissues you've had a hand in and I, I wonder like, as you're getting these ideas, I picture like someone pitching a script or pitching a book. How does it go down when you have an idea? Are you pitching the idea to record companies or do they have an idea of what they already want to do? And they're like, we know the perfect guy for this. Like for our listeners who are interested in maybe doing things like this, how do, how do these projects come about in, uh, with record companies and you? It's a mixture of both things. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's me saying, understanding that this record company owns this material now and to pitch them on a project, a box set or a reissue of a record with bonus tracks, or I understand that, you know, this exists. Uh, And then on the other hand, there are companies that come to me and say, we want to do this. We think you're the right person for it based on knowing your other reissues. 
Yeah. Then it's also the only artist that's ever asked me to actually work on a record or insisted that I work on a record is Ray Davies of the Kinks. Mm. Even the monkeys, they don't care if I work it on their records. <laughs> just, you know, all these artists, people would be, oh, the, those artists must love you. They must like, you know, no. They just want to get their records out. Their music is their thing. And I'm just a part of it. And I've always understood that. But yeah. my relationship with um, with the Kinks has been really one that I, I cherish because growing up in the Palisades, I would sit in my room with my headphones and my Walkman and listen to recordings and just imagine what other recordings might exist from the same era. And there yeah. was a drugstore in the town, a save on drugs that had this like rack of really cheap cassette tapes. And they had the other Kinks albums that would ah. like pop up at the time until I could find the vinyl copies of them. Yeah. But uh, as far as getting into it, I've been asked that advice a lot over the years. How do mm. I, I really like what you do. I like, like to do the same thing. Yeah. And it seems like the best way to get started is kind of how I got started with my fanzine, which is to kind of make something yourself, discover something right. yourself, because getting your foot in the door and saying, hey, I want to compile the best of Led Zeppelin is right. probably not going to happen unless probably you're, not. Uh, yeah. Page's son or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it sort of the way it happened for me was Bill Inglot, who is one of the great geniuses of reissues and specifically more on the technical side of things. I mean, he is a great mm. compiler and producer and mixer, but he, you know, he doesn't do as much writing. Mm. He had so much work at that time that he did need somebody who could take some of the load off of him. So then right. I was always been quite happy to collaborate with people. And that's yeah. a great way to start is to, to work on a team with people and sort sure. of work your way up. Sure. But I, I feel like if you, these days, if you do, you know, playlists online or you build up some credibility as maybe a DJ, like I have a radio show and that explores a lot of my obsessions that are not reissuable because they come from so many labels like Universal that will never touch some obscure single that they don't yeah. even have to work on. Uh, right. But <laughs> you, have, you have to sort of build up a reputation somehow. You, you have to show some proof of what you can do versus sure. I just want to do it. So yeah. let me, and I think that that's the, sort of the same thing with playing music. You know, yeah. one thing to say, I write songs or I play the guitar. Uh, you know, you and I were in a school band where there were like six guitar players yeah. uh, for, for like the, the stage band or the jazz band or whatever. It was just right. insane. But that's the thing. Everybody plays guitar. Everybody can yeah. kind of sing mostly, you know, yeah. but you have to actually do your own thing and make it, make a demo, make some sort of proof of your thing and then start to kind of distribute it and, and then see if somebody will take a chance. Yeah. I think, I think uh, just underlining the fact that self-motivation is such a huge part of all of this. Anybody that we know uh, outside of people, we know anybody who's made it in music and makes a living at music is a self-motivated person. You've got to make things happen yourself and that other people are going to jump on board because they see how excited you are and that you're doing stuff. Exactly. I mean, and yeah, once they have some proof of what you're doing, then then you sort of live and die by whether or not other people like it, you know, whether yeah. people want to support you. I mean, the first day 
I sort of got involved in in the studio. I and this Monkeys record. I was still in high school with you, and it was finals day, and I had done the third issue of the magazine, which you were holding up earlier with XTC, and I'd interviewed Davy Jones, and I was working towards the next thing, which was I was going to interview some more people, and I had gotten. Uh, talking to Bill Inglot at Rhino, and I was interested in reissues and how reissues were done and finding master tapes and mixing yeah. outtakes and other things. So I had bugged him on the phone a few times, and I called him over at his mastering studio that he was working at called K-Disc. And mm-hmm. he said, oh, did I, did I say you could come over today? I don't remember. Well, I guess you can come over, and then we'll go over. After this, I'm going to Penguin Studios, and we're gonna, I'm going to go through Monkey's Tapes, and you could we can talk and stuff like that. So I said, yeah, now I had a final that day. I, I lived close to the high school and walked home and it made a phone call. And I just decided, well, I'm ditching my final and I'm going to go out to Hollywood and (laughs) the number two bus. I didn't have a car and get till I got to K disc, which was like an hour away from by bus from where we were. And I walked in there and Bill was working with a guy named Shul Tommy on a Kinks compilation. Yeah. Just coincidentally, and Shell Tommy produced The Who and The Kinks and The Easy Beats and yeah. creation, lots of amazing people. And he was there. They were working on EQing some masters for production. And then Bill drove me to Eagle Rock to the studio called Penguin. And he oh. had a bunch of the original Monkeys multi track tapes, four track tapes, and eight track tapes. And he was starting to mix them for this compilation. And he started talking to me. You know, I was kind of asking him some questions, but I was mostly observing and listening and being quiet. And, but he asked me like, where, where does this come from or whatever? And I had done a lot of research on recording dates and other things. And I just spontaneously had a lot of info and I guess he liked that. Now I had no way to get home. So I asked him to drop me off somewhere in Hollywood, like anywhere on sunset. Cause I knew yeah. anywhere on sunset I could get the number two bus back to the Palisades. And so eventually in the right. evening, I got back, but I like I went back thinking like, "Hey, I'd really like to do that." Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and so I just kind of kept observing and hanging out. And by the summertime, I had uh, got a little bit of traction with, I you know I can write, I can do this, I can do that, and and so it kind of followed on from there. You made yourself an asset. It it was it presented itself, and I took the chance, so I was lucky. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, trying, you know, I, I feel like 90% of the stuff that's happened uh, to me that's been good, you know, whether it's working with people that I admired or opportunities is because I asked and I went for it and I tried, you know, right. if you just sit there and kind of don't, don't, don't do anything because that's ah, probably not going to happen, you know, then it's definitely not going to happen. You know, you got to go out and try for stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's music. I wanted it badly enough, you know, without yeah. It's it's not that I don't want them, but I have less confidence. With music, I feel like I built enough of an understanding of it that I can do it. And sure. It's very fulfilling. So I'm willing to – it's my path and kind of my religion. I, it, I'm willing to take the risks and just go for it. I feel like if I'm doing what I feel like I'm here to do, then I'm – that's what I need to do. I, I'm okay. You know, I'll be okay. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm with you on that, Andrew. High five on that one. Well, um, I wanted a virtual high five. So when you're reissuing stuff, I I always wanted to ask you um, regarding just unearthing and finding things and remixing these lost bits of music. 
How do artists react when you're finding this stuff? Are they as excited as you are? Or is it just kind of, uh, you know, oh, yeah, tidbits of recorded material they haven't heard in years in many cases? Mostly almost kind of negative, I would oh, say. Yeah. I, my going into it after doing this for 30 years would say, I always expect negative stuff and artists to say no first mm. or they say yes to things. They're often yeah. it's not the the uh, almost famous fantasy were like, Hey man, that's cool. Like let's hang out and be buddies and do all that <laughs> never happens. Yeah. Because just imagine you with your music, if somebody like went into your space that you're in right now and took your raw materials and yeah. start messing with them and say, Hey, I think this is really cool. I'm going to do yeah. something with this. I'm making my own mix of it and everything. You'd be like, uh-huh. Hey, so, yeah. So for the most part, I have to go in very, very carefully and gently and understand that that's, that's the thing. You're dealing with this person's personal space and their art, and yeah. it has to be respected first. And ultimately, whatever they say is what you probably have to do. Now, you can push back a little bit and say, oh, wow, well, I think this is like the greatest version of this I've ever heard, or the demo is, it made me feel this way. And sometimes yeah. art respond to that and say yeah okay well that's cool i'll yeah. think about that but yeah. other things like i was working on a reissue of the bg's uh first album which is one of my favorite albums uh from 1967 yeah. and people who don't know that material versus the disco material that it's yeah. they were very pop psych beautiful beatlesque melodies and other things i mean incredible songwriters yes but their first single in england was new york mining disaster which is an incredible record but what i didn't know prior to working on the reissues, because I couldn't, I had no access to their tapes, is they actually made three versions of the song leading up to the final one that came out as a single as their first real hit internationally. Now, they these were just not three different takes of a song. These are three separate arrangements, three separate recordings. Oh, wow. One fully-fledged one with an orchestra, another one that started with, like, squelching, like, really loud, ear-piercing feedback, which... I don't know who thought that was going to get, going to go on radio, but <laughs> it, get, it get my attention. And then the final yeah. one. And so when these were presented, and and the Bee Gees did actually, Barry and Robin, who were alive at that time, Morris had yeah. passed away. They did approve these, which was great of them. But Barry believed that I had created these, that they had never recorded them, because in his mind, he only recalled recording the final one. Okay. And, oh, well, you know. I have the session tape and I can send you a copy of it if you want to hear his. I believe that you think you're being truthful to me when you say that, but yeah. I don't remember it. So I think that this has just been created. And right. at that point, I said, okay, well, you know, you don't, you don't get into an argument with the artist over, well, no, 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 you're wrong. I have yeah. the tape, you know, you know, I, I also learned that with Elvis Costello too, where, you know, I worked with him on, uh, records for a period of about eight years yeah and you could never out elvis costello elvis costello on elvis costello and i (laughs) wasn't really trying to but he knew way more about what he was doing and had such a clear recollection if you said well i found all this stuff is that's great but there's also all of this other stuff and then i did demos of this and i bet you don't know about this and all this other stuff so he in you know he unlike a lot of other artists who just make art and move on he had kind of encyclopedic knowledge of his own stuff and everybody's different so you know dealing 
with Van Morrison was quite different too, it, but great in a way. It, yeah. it, because his main thing was, well, who's going to do this? And I said, I'll do this. I'll take care of this. Okay, fine. If you're going to do it, fine. You know, yeah. but it was always very much like, I don't have a lot of time and I, I want this done this way, but you have to tell me exactly what you're going to do and you can't deviate from that because if you hmm. deviate, it's over with. Yeah. So, you know, when you learn that there's certain ground rules, it works. But other times you're dealing with an artist and you you break a rule that you don't know was there. Right. And it can mean the end of your relationship with the label and it can mean the end of your relationship with the artist. It can mean the end of your relationship with their music if you let your relationship with them affect how you feel about their music. Mm. You know, if, if your favorite band is whoever, whoever I've worked with, you know, yeah. and then one of their art, one of the, the members of the band you've dealt with and they insult you or they yell at you or they say you are never going to work with you again, that could make you never want to hear their music again. And sure. you have to take that risk. I always feel there's the artist and then the art, like I love their art. And then sometimes I love the artist too. Sometimes they're great people and you hang out and you have yeah. lunch or, you know, whatever, but would I have them watering my house plants or taking care of my cats? Yeah. Because no, their job is to make music. So yeah. they're they're just human beings. But some people sort of put them on this level or they want to create this imaginary delusional relationship that they're like, you know, Jeff Spicoli talking to Stu Nahan and like, you know, <laughs> you know, you, know they, you, you get into, you, you can get into a fantasy where you think that right. you're their best friend because they've treated you nicely and you're engaged in their music and all this other stuff, but they have their own lives and their own families and children and problems. Sure. And you're just doing one thing in their life. Right. So I always temper everything I do with my modest expectations of how it will turn out. And I get very stressed out over it. And then it comes out and then I have to move on to the next stressful situation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, that's uh, some good insight. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, I, I'm amazed at Elvis Costello's just uh, his, uh, his encyclopedic knowledge of everything. That's incredible. It is. It, it, Would you it, say he was pretty singular or are there others who have been as uh, detailed in their recounting of, of all the stuff they've done? Well, I think Ray Davies was interesting because as I got to know him, um, he would talk to me in more of a shorthand about different things, knowing that I knew a lot about music. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying that in a, in a braggadocious way, more like we were standing at a party and I said, oh, I thought this came out great. And he's like, well, I don't know. Well, maybe. Well, I haven't listened to it. Well, I listened to it. Yeah. But hey, listen to this, Andrew. And, and he was, there was a kink song, he goes, The Ventures. And then I realized, oh, this section of this kink song is actually like Walk, Don't Run. But he knew uh -huh. that I would know who The Ventures were and because of our past experiences. And, you know, we were listening to a live tape once and there was all this like really like saturated Hammond organ. And he just like rolled his eyes and he looked at me and goes, Vanilla Fudge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, once you get talking to somebody, they they get interested in certain things. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I saw I ran to Elvis at a hotel in Milwaukee this past year around October. Oh yeah. And it was really interesting because I hadn't seen him or talked to him in a number of years. But he 
I said, oh, hey, um, you see, it's Andrew Sandoval. Who? Andrew Sandoval. Oh, how are the monkeys? And you know, that was the first thing he asked me. I said, oh, you know, great. Well, it's good to see you here and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, you should be happy with what you've done with them because that's to do something with a band that you really love. That's really special. And I said, well, I got to work on your records. And for me, that was really special. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but anyway, <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting moving through life and having these people as like characters in your own life story. Yeah. Oh man, it's a it's a wonderful, stressful, awesome, creative dream. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I wanted to talk about uh I know if for the uh, for your compilation, your nuggets compilation where the action is, you were nominated for a Grammy, which is oh. impressive. And I I told you my whole story about getting that box set from a friend who just laid it on me. She's like, I think you'd love this. And I opened it up and it was like your name was on it. I was like, well, now I love it even more. So it was, <laughs> but I, I wanted to talk to you about what it was like getting nominated for a Grammy and just what that experience is like for our listeners. Well, it was really fantastic for me because that compilation, uh, Los Angeles Nuggets, Where the Action Is, was kind of, and is still kind of my favorite of all the records I've done. Oh, yeah. All the other artists. But because <laughs> I grew up in Los Angeles, and I'm a native of Los Angeles, born in Santa Monica. I loved yeah. British music growing up, and I just thought British music was the best. And then slowly, I, through working at Rhino and having these other influences and experiences, I realized I come from a really cool place. Yeah. And we have all of our own cool bands, The Birds, Love, Buffalo Springfield, and then on and on and on. And people yeah. came here to make records. And L.A. as a vessel to kind of distribute music to the world is a whole thing unto itself. And that's part of what the box set is about, uh, mm -hmm. just understanding Los Angeles's role, because with all these other music scenes around the world, like New York or San Francisco in particular, they have their very high-minded way of saying Los Angeles sucks, it's yeah. false, fake people, whatever. Yeah. I think Los Angeles is a great place, and we've got yes. a lot of great creativity happening. Uh, as far as the Grammy thing is concerned, it was really a wonderful accolade to receive and something that I'm so proud of. I was co-nominated with Cheryl Powelski and Alec Palau, who yeah. produced the box set with me. I was the compiler of the box set, and I also worked on the restoration of a lot of the recordings, the engineering of it. So I got a nomination uh, for both the producer and recording engineer, which is very nice. Wow. Um, but I was nominated against my old foes, the Beatles, Hank <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Williams, Buddy Holly, I don't oh, know wow. how much more stacked against me it could have been. It wasn't <laughs> that, you know, forever more, just like, you know, having doctor in front of your name. I feel like I can be Grammy nominated producer and engineer. So I, I feel really special about it because so many people say bad things about the Grammys that they don't recognize mm -hmm. great music. But if you yeah. look at what they, what Neris does with music cares, and also if you look at what they do with their lifetime achievement awards and also what they do in the historical categories and also with hmm. art and other things, art direction, they do recognize a lot of great stuff, even if sure. it's not the contemporary stuff, even if they, you know, had a taste of honey was the, the best artist over Elvis Costello or, you know, Millie, whatever, whatever your hangup is where you're going to go on your rant about the Grammys every yeah. year, I yeah. think, well, I do see some of the good work they do in, outreach, helping the artistic community and 
the preservation of music and also recognition recognition for historic music yeah. is really, really good. I, I make no comment on contemporary music because I don't have the background or knowledge of really what's happening at all. Yeah. Yeah. So um and I and I understand people have their have their viewpoints, but it was a great thing. I I had been involved in um subsequently in the board of governors with them and also in hmm. being in a craft committee with uh after I had been through that process of not uh, of getting uh the nomination. So I learned a lot more about what they do after I got the nomination. And um, yeah. it was it was amazing going to the Grammys. I didn't go in thinking I was going to win a, a, against the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> another box that I had co-produced at that time with the same people was the Big Star box set. And I was nominated for line runs. That did win. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So that was really nice. And um, it was nice to just be be involved, but also know that, you know, I've got my little plaque and but it's for a record about my hometown and where I come from and what I really love in music. And it's an exhaustive and exhausting uh, box set, 99 artists, 101 songs. It's a big book, you know, and um, I did a review to R-E-V-U-E with a number of the artists at Amoeba where I got to play guitar behind some of the artists. I organized it and did the musical a short short thing and there's still a video up of that so it was great oh, i got man. to got to sort of do all the things i know a little bit about playing music writing uh doing some engineering doing some restoration certainly yeah. compiling um and dealing with artists and it, it um it was the best of all worlds oh that's great i love hearing that that's a great story well, if you would, can you talk to our listeners about your journey to becoming a full-fledged author? You've got your book that you put out, The Monkeys Day by Day, uh, that did really well uh, in 2005, and you've recently self-published a second edition that's greatly expanded to satiate uh, all the Monkeys fans out there with all kinds of new information. And I wondered if you'd talk about uh, what it's like getting a book published, you know, what uh, finding a publisher for the first edition, deciding on self-publishing the second edition. How do you get a book published? What'd you do? Well, I had started writing it about 1990. I got the idea of doing a day-by-day book on the monkeys after seeing what Mark Lewison had done with the Beatles. Right. Um, I love that Beatles recording sessions book. And I'd gone to the Beatle fest and met Mark Lewison. I was with you. Yeah. And um, Mm -hmm. I just was such an admirer, but I I realized that there were all these dates I had access to from tapes. Mm -hmm. I could start putting those in. And then I started looking through old magazines and started to figure out the chronology of all this stuff. And over a period of 15 years from 90 to 2005, I had got a big chunk of it done. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know, uh, I, I did have a lot of examples of my writing, and I had excerpted part of it in this um, Monkey's Rhino Handmade set called Headquarter Sessions. So yeah, I, had, yeah. I had sample chapters, which if you want to sell a book, it's got to be more than just a one-sheet pitch page of, you know, this is the story. People yeah. are immediately, if they're interested at all, they want to see a sample chapter from you, even if it's the book isn't done. They want to uh, see, they want to see what what it's going to be like. And yeah. um, 
I had all that. I had a friend in England named Kieran Tyler who writes for Mojo Magazine and a number of oh, other yeah. publications. And he brought me to a publisher in London called uh, Backbeat. And I actually sold the book in the first meeting. The very oh, wow. first went to a publisher. So it was yeah. very, uh, very fortuitous. But then I had a book contract and I had three months to complete a book I'd been working on for 15 years. Now, what I didn't know was going to happen was I was going to go through like the most traumatic time of my life, not just with the, you know, it was, I knew what I needed to do with the book and I knew I needed to focus, but a lot of crazy stuff happened personally in my personal life while mm. I was reading the book. And I was yeah. you know, finally having this dream come true. I want to be a published author. I had a real contract and they had signed with an American company, Backbeat, uh, called uh, Thunder Bay in America. It was going to come out in America, which it did. Okay. And um, but the process of writing the book it ended up taking seven months rather than three. And in the midst of it, you know, I nearly got uh, divorced, and I had adopted a cat that gouged out my eye. My eye was swollen shut. I had stitches oh. in my eye, so I couldn't write. I was like in emotional and physical pain. But yeah. it was a, another sort of test where it's like, how single-minded are you about? the music and the writing and what, you know, what are you going to stop everything and deal with your personal issues or are you going to do this? And yeah. I, I did that and I had to deal with all the personal issues subsequently, which were really painful and took years to get figured out uh, emotionally and otherwise, but I got the book completed and then yeah. it was very successful. Um, it went through two printings but ultimately, the U.S. company that had uh, licensed it from the U.K. company were um, shut down by the FBI for accounting fraud. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> so you know, it's all these things sound like dream scenarios, but the reality is that there's, you know, there's always some uh, hitch in the giddy up, as they say. Uh, well, <laughs> yes. One of my issues with the book was. I was unhappy with the final product of the 2005 book, but mm. most other people that got the book were not. They were they were very happy with it. They were really happy okay. with it. They were really happy with the information. And I learned to not tell people, hey, well, I don't think the book's very good. Because I, you know, I've met a lot of artists and I say, This is my favorite album by you. And this is so great. And they're like, oh, I hate that I record. Hate that. I hate that record. Yeah, <laughs> you know, people say that, but it just brings up a really bad time in my life. Mm. And I learned, you know, if my book's going to be a success, I'm not going to tell everybody about my personal problems going yeah. through it. You know, this mistake that I think is in the book and how I don't like this part of it or whatever else. But I did say to myself, if there's any way I signed away the rights to this book in this contract and it didn't look very likely that I would get the rights back anytime soon. But I had mm. told the publisher, um, if there's any possibility of me buying back the rights to the book, yeah, I want you to know that I'm very interested in that. Yeah. They're just griping about it. I, I just said, look, and and when the thing with the FBI happened, yeah. They came back to me and they said, well, we are having to shut down. They ended up reorganizing their company. They shut down Backbeat Books and it became Jawbone which is still exists. Uh -huh. But they said, if you want the rights back, you know, we're, we're owed all this money and all this stuff. You have to buy back all of this stock and you have to buy back this and this and that. And I said, sure. So, oh, wow. um, yeah. 
So I did that because to me, the book was like a part of my heart. It's like some people feel about a record. It, you know, you sign sure. a record deal or whatever, and you think, you know, that people give you money or they market your record for you or they own your masters, whatever, but you still yeah. feel like it's your thing. Yeah. Uh, and you feel like, yeah, I, 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 I signed that away because I wanted it to happen, but now it's happened. I want it back. So yeah. I really wanted this thing back. <laughs> and, and I, and, and they made a deal with me and I got it back. Now, okay. for a number of years, for no other reason than I didn't have time to deal with it. I yeah. got involved 10 years ago in managing the monkeys. Mm-hmm. Really a weird you know, thing to happen in my life. I'd known all of them. Started, I met Davy Jones in 1988, and then subsequently all, all four of the monkeys through to 1991. Mm-hmm. And Mickey Dolans came to me around 2009, and he said, you know, I think that you may be the only person on earth who could pick up the phone and get all four of us on the phone on any given day because you're the only one who talks to all four of us. We don't talk to each other that much. Hmm. And you have an okay relationship with everybody. Everybody likes you to an extent. So why <laughs> don't you think about managing us and putting us yeah. back together for a concert tour? Now, I was huh. at, I, at the time, I was director of A&R for Rhino, uh, which is not to say most people in, in England, director is like the best thing you can be. Director at Rhino is like kind of here um mm. which was really great to have the job but yeah. it was also at a time when the recession hit and i was gonna end up being laid off uh in in pretty short succession i'd done big wow. star box where the action is had the grammy nomination but on one day they let go 40 people and i was one of the 40 people oh yeah so the monkeys managing them i had to kind of make that work like i had to make the book contract work and all these other things. I had to shout out all the negativity and just think this is my focus now for, yeah. because I know I can do it, but also for the survive for my own survival and for, and for everything else. I mean, I knew that we could do something different to what the monkeys have been doing on the road, which I've been seeing the monkeys since 1986, every tour and always been disappointed. I love the mm-hmm. monkeys music, but I didn't yeah. like how they presented it. I always thought like they had the cheesy Budweiser guitar or synthesizer strings or all this other stuff. Like it didn't ever sound like the records. And I love the records so much. And also yeah. they would ignore a lot of good music on the records and just play random, random stuff. Yeah. You know, Gary Glitters, Hello, Hello, like bizarre <laughs> things. The monkeys have always done really bizarre things. Uh-huh. So I thought, well, if I can get this going and also make a change to how they're doing things, I'll feel really good about it. And I think the fans will feel really good about it and they'll be more successful. And this thing will take on this other level that has always been there. The monkeys always should have been treated more seriously than they have. Yeah. So that's what we did. But it took a couple of years. And then I was paired with another manager who was way more experienced than me uh, initially on the first tour. However, Mm. um, when things start to go wrong, he had bigger clients and he was like, I don't have time to deal with these guys. So mm. I would never abandon the monkeys because not only my relationship, but they're kind of my family in a way. So mm. when things went bad, I stayed there with them and said, let's figure out how to sort this out. Yeah. Davis died and how do we sort that out? And, and, you know, uh, subsequently they, they've needed help and I knew what to help them with. So so long story short, I'm in Australia and Peter has passed away, who was, you know, just a beloved person in my life. 
and yeah. I'm there with Michael and Mickey, and I sensed this thing was ending. The whole monkeys thing, the touring thing, ten year period was ending, and I I thought, you know what, it's time for me to go back to the book, and yeah. when I come home, actually spend time and finish it. So it's a long story, but there's there's some really interesting things that happen. Yeah. I I put out a thing on online saying I am going to do I'm finally going to revise the book people have asked me for years I'm getting into it so if you have information uh of about things that might be helpful to me you know I will give you full credit but you know write to me I, here's a new email address just for that and yeah. somebody wrote me and said hey I got this interesting thing off of eBay recently and it's a court deposition from Davy Jones uh, what right. are, you, are you interested in that? And I said, well, like, when is it from? He goes, 1967. I said, well, look, I could never reproduce a court deposition. So why don't you just take a few um, pictures with your phone and a couple pages and I could read it. So yeah. I did. And he's like, oh, that was really simple. So I just sent you the whole thing. I started reading it and I was like, this deposition rewrites and changes the way I think about the monkeys entirely. Is David oh, wow. Allen, at the height of their uh, success in May of 67, talking about how they were formed, his opinions on the other monkeys, and mm. their, their current legal issue with Don Kirshner, who was the guy who who was the music supervisor for them, who really didn't yeah. want to be a, a full-fledged group independent of, of the system. Sure. So uh, I, I confided in a friend of mine about this. And I said, this is really just amazing. And, and she said, well, look at the court case on the on the front of the the thing you can write to the court and you can see the other papers. So uh, I wrote the court, waited a few months, like the old yeah. old days, because <laughs> don't care about the monkeys or right. me. You know, it's like normal, real life. Yeah. Uh, and they got back to me. And they said we have two big boxes of stuff, but it's so much stuff. You you can pay somebody to come down here and look at it, research it for you. But we, hmm. we don't, you can't pay us to scan it. But uh, so I thought about it. I was like, I got to see this stuff. So I decided, well, I know some people in New York that could do this. And the stuff was stored in New York. But uh -huh. like, no one's going to know exactly what it is I'm looking for or want. I'm hmm. going to fly to New York, and I'm going to stay by the courthouse, and I'm just going to go and do this. Now, all this happened in February of 2020. Yeah. I got 2,000 pages of legal documents. Um under supervision, I was watched. I couldn't bring in a, a coat. If I took off, if I had a coat, I took it off. They're like, "We, you have to take that out of the room because they, no, you know, don't want any theft. No, you know, everything has to be above board." I had a cell phone with a camera, and that was the, you know, and a and a pencil, and that's all I could use. But I got all this stuff, and then I had a tour with the monkeys set up for April um, for an album I produced, a live album. Yeah, but it all got postponed and canceled because lockdown happened in March of 2020. Yeah, sure. And all yeah. of a sudden I was sitting there and like, it's another crisis of what do I do? I'm the whole touring thing, which had been sustaining me reissues. There's no money in reissues anymore for me. Mm -hmm. Not, yeah. I mean, a few thousand dollars a year, which doesn't pay for me to, to, to even eat or put gas in my car. I do sure. it. Because I love doing it. And it's what I've always done, but I have to do all these other things in music to make ends meet. Sure. And um, I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I, I'm I'm going to have to get sell off a bunch of stuff and sell a bunch of my collection to survive. I mean, at least I have that stuff, but I, you know, I have no other means of support. And right. then I thought about it more and more. I was like, you know, my big gamble, my big roll of the dice here is I'm going to 
do finish up my book. I'm going to use this time when all everything shuts down to just yeah. do my book. And if anybody calls me, say no, I can't see you. You know, go back to how I felt in the 1970s and the early 80s when I was doing my fanzine when the phone didn't ring because nobody knew who I was or wanted to talk to me. And yeah. you know, I had no, I couldn't go anywhere because I didn't have any money. And transport, you know, you couldn't go anywhere because of lockdown. You'd get sick. I yeah. just sat where I was. I had enough money, luckily, to pay my rent and buy food. And I just sat and did my book. And I ended up with a 740-page book, yeah. which got two loans. And I self-financed publishing it because I felt Amazon would be a really bad choice for me because they take 60% of the money in, and yeah. you know, because they want to sell your work so cheaply. And I felt, right. no, I'm going to sell a lot less books, but I'm going to sell, make a book that I really care about. And, right. uh, and I did. So I managed to sell it and set up a distribution of my own and how to fulfill it. And also made videos, YouTube videos talking about it. I had to build trust with my customers because the supply chain was hard to deal with. Books yeah. showed up, you know, to deliver much later. And I, taking pre-orders and stuff, but sold out the book. And I'm, I'm really wow. thrilled with how I thank my customers. And I also thank the stars that all of it got done. And I, I have now a book that is exactly what I want. So what you wanted. That's amazing. It, was it difficult finding a distributor for the book? And well, I ended up doing all the distribution myself. Um, okay. Because I guess the part I left out was Originally, I was just going to augment and correct the book, but when I got mm. all the new information, yeah. I decided to completely rewrite the book from scratch during lockdown. Right. So I, right, I did right. it in a year, and then I, I reached out to people of who I knew that I knew the things were shipped out from um, fulfillment centers, like what they call pick and pack places, and that mm. make, make lots of products. So I contacted a, a place like that in 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 California and said, mm. "Hey, this is my project, but." Uh, treat it like a pop-up. I'm going to have yeah. many units of this this thing arriving on this date, um, and I need it delivered this way. And then having to set up a shop through Shopify, my friend Allison Boron and I worked on this for like months. It's mm. not intuitive or easy <laughs> unless you're no. selling really light goods with free shipping. Uh, uh, selling a book that, that weighs 15 pounds, literally, in the big one, yeah. you have to charge people for shipping and they don't have an easy way of doing that on Shopify. So you have to pay mm. for party apps and all these other things. So we had to like, it was a long thing, but I did everything myself from um, sourcing the, the, um, the printer who I got through my friend, Brian Key, who did these amazing Beatles books, like recording the Beatles and yeah. then finding a place to fill it and dealing directly with customers. And I got uh, a friend of another friend of mine to do, customer service because I knew I couldn't answer everybody's emails. You get thousands of yeah. emails. So it's just kind of building up from all the different facets of things I've done, but having to finally sort of be the adult and say, well, I've got to do this on my own because the only way that I'll make back the money to pay off the loans and to move forward because the career that I had is over with for the time right. being, I need to do this other, I need to make a new career for myself. Right, right. That's amazing, Andrew. I'm so happy it all worked out. And I'm just, I love to hear that uh, it turned out exactly how you wanted it, because I know you're such an, you have such attention to detail. And it just gives uh, Monkeys fans that you know so well, something just to cherish for, you know, forever. 
just a well, beautiful thank, yeah, document. I, I feel good that it's done. You know, there's all these things in life, like you plan to, you know, file away these records, or you plan to, you know, throw out this stuff or donate these clothes or, whatever, you know, or your project. I'm working on this album or I'm working on this. And through that, there was all the tension, the mental tension of, am I going to get sick? Like I yeah. got, you know, like I got sick the first time when I was doing the book, what's going to happen mm -hmm. that's going to derail this? Like, am I going to get through it? And and so the fact that I got through it, I, I look at the book now and I'm just so pleased it's done. It, yeah. Aside from all the other things, just like that's done and I can move on to the next thing in my life. So that's the thing I think, you know, as produce, you know, whatever, anyone who's producing anything just to get stuff across the finish line is such a big deal. Uh <laughs> Yeah, people don't people don't always know the backstory, you know, and sometimes it can be just such an ordeal to get something across the finish line. And people shouldn't know the backstory in a lot of ways, because, yeah. I mean, if it's successful, then it's good. But, um, you know, it detracts from people's experience, I think, to be negative yeah. sometimes. I mean, the one thing I'll say is that, you know, you just have to you have to be versatile and 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 want to want to do different things in order to make it work if something falls through you have to be able to say okay well what do we do now and and you can't right. say well i was nominated for a grammy so i'm done like i'm just <laughs> going to post on that for the rest of my life uh right. or i did one record and i'm going to coast you know some artists only make one album and it's the greatest album of all time you know they but sure. um for the rest of us, we just have to keep doing and doing and doing and doing and proving ourselves to people so that uh, mm -hmm. we can keep, you know, eating and surviving and support our families and whatnot. That's it. I mean, I'm always grateful when people ask about things I've done and like, you know, have questions about it. But I, I, I'm always honest that I was like, I, I can't really remember because as soon as that one was done, I just moved on to the next one. You know, I'm always... What's my next project? What am I going to get into next? You know, just because you got to keep moving, keep finding new things to inspire and to, you know, pay the mortgage. It's a difficult way to live, I, I think. I mean, it'd be nice yeah. to have more space and time between things. But unfortunately, sure. things have just gotten faster and faster as communication and, and everything else. Recording is faster now. If you're making yeah. an album, you know, you can you can do get a lot done you you know in when we started out playing music you know was saving up to go into a 24 track recording studio and that was like yeah you know a year's rent <laughs> totally and buying Absolutely. a little tape was $200 and now it's just yeah. you you have a computer and you can do a lot of stuff so that's it that's it well, in, in your job description, working with the monkeys has been to tour manage them as well. What is it like tour managing the monkeys? Well, to be honest, I have an actual real, and I have a real tour manager who does the tour managing, and okay. I always have because gotcha. they. I, I've been the the artist manager, but the monkeys haven't always liked calling me their manager because they felt like they should have like a real manager, <laughs> but. Oh. Um, but they called me their tour producer. And what the tour producer okay. does is I hire all the crew, meaning I hire a tour manager, production manager, front of house sound person, monitors, lighting mm -hmm. director, stage tech, um, and then occasionally a video operator, um, assistants, um, and look at the overall budget, which could include um, getting a truck, series of buses, depending on how we're tra our transport, uh, overseeing hotel booking, 
overseeing plane booking. Now, tour manager does a lot of these things too, but because yeah. of my personal relationship with the artist, I have to look at all the budget and also be more of an accountant at sometimes. Mm, uh, yeah. Being a tour producer for the monkeys means also getting involved. This is my favorite part is getting involved in the set list, uh, yeah. how the show is staged, uh, how the music is presented, uh, working with the musical director, saying, well, that's great how you're doing it, but you know, there's this acoustic guitar part. Is it possible that that could be part of it too? Um, the song doesn't sound, we, we have the song on the set list. It's one that hasn't been done in a long time. We've rehearsed it. It doesn't sound good. It's not going in the show. Or watching yeah. the show to the artist and saying, uh, I think we need to change this around. Or the artist saying, you know what, Andrew, we love you, but this obscure song that you think is really great sucks. And nobody likes it except for you. <laughs> you know, I've been told that many times. And I'll have to say, well, okay, I'll take it out right away. Or would you just yeah. do it for this date and just see, give me, give me like two more chances with it. See if the audience yeah. gets it. And sometimes it's flipped around. They're like, this is great. We should have been doing yeah. this all the time. Other times. I mean, I, I also have produced um, tours on the, did these British invasion tours, which are great. that had Chad and Jeremy, Billy J. Kramer, um, Peter Asher, Peter and Gordon, and uh, Denny Lane yeah. from the Moody Blues. Oh, yeah. And right. some of those guys were great with me. And other, others at the start of the tour, they said, well, you paid us this money, so we're going to show up and play the crappy songs you picked. But, man, you have terrible taste. And at wow. the end of the tour, they were like, we love you. We'll come back. When, when can we work together again? So you have to oh, be nice. – you have to be willing to, if you're going to say, Hey, I, you really need to do this song. Um, then you have to be able to, to take the criticism from them. Sure. Because sure. You also, if you, you're saying do this song, it's usually at the expense of what their new song is. They might have a, literally a five minute power ballad that they think really is more representative of who they are today, but you're yeah. selling this to an audience. And I feel like I'm part of the audience that I'm sure. Working with, or like I hired Jerry Marsden, who's now deceased of Jerry and the Pacemakers, and I had to mm. wire his manager fifty thousand dollars for the start of a mm. tour. But then he had heart trouble and he never came. And I had to try and oh. get them back, but it was like I just sent fifty thousand dollars to Jerry Marsden. Am I insane? But then yeah. I thought, well, at least this will be a great story if it doesn't work out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it, it an expensive story. You take you take financial risk and you take all kinds of other risks in this last year when I did the Monkeys Farewell Tour. It's taking yeah. you know personal risk in that Michael wasn't feeling well but really desperately wanted to do this tour because he wanted to reconnect with a lot of people and wanted yeah. to get out of the house after being through hell for two years on lockdown, just not yeah. being able to do what he wanted to, but also being in diminished physical state and also thought of getting sick and dying thought of anybody getting sick and dying on a tour that I am on top of. I mean, yeah. all of this crazy stuff. So there's a lot of logistics and, uh, you know, tactical moves, just looking at different scenarios. Of, if we go this way at this hour, these are the bad things that could happen to us. You just have to think about all of this stuff all the time. And the creative yeah. stuff, like, well, it'd be really cool to have a video of this behind you while you play the song or do this yeah. weird song or do this, these songs in this order or have an acoustic set. All that's the fun part that sure. takes up like this amount of time. And, and the rest is like, <laughs> this. and now yeah. the artist wants this and they want their own bus and they want uh, a private plane and they want that, you know, like 
and then the other artist doesn't want that. Like, who's going to pay for that? And and this person thinks that they were insulted by this person, and you have to get oh, in the middle boy. of both of them. You know, all that. That's what I yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've been following your post, you know, just towards the end of Mike Nesmith's life. And I'm just, uh, it made me happy just to know that he was feeling the love and his, his last months on earth were just spent getting a lot of that love from fans. And it seemed like he really enjoyed it. So that's uh, thanks to you because of that. That's, that's amazing. Well, thanks to him too, for, because he took the risk to do it and share yeah. himself I mean, when I first met him, I had always loved his his first national band music, his country rock music, and I talked to him for years. You should do this, and he said, "Andrew, I can't make any money playing country music." Yeah, and I said, "You know, you're wrong." He goes, "I'm all about electronica now." Oh but yeah. In subsequent years, he was like, "Well, I'm ready to do this. Like, how are we going to do this?" So I got, you know, I worked with I work with a booking agent, um, great booking agents, and. Uh, got him this gig at the Troubadour that sold out in less than an hour. And it was wow. a real vindication uh, for him because he felt like no one cares about this music. So I saw him get his, his solo music, which I cared so much about. I saw him get that respect too in his yeah. lifetime. And in my That's lifetime, awesome. I can see him do all those great songs. Uh, plus rejoining the monkeys after many years and, and acknowledging the monkeys. And then finally feeling like, Oh, I like the monkeys music. and I like the monkeys fans. And, and that was a big yeah. step for him because he had a lot of baggage, you know, uh, from right. years of criticism. I love, uh, it's a great note to end on as far as uh, your time with the monkeys that he got to feel all that. That's beautiful. Well, we touched on it earlier, but uh, the last thing I'd love to just talk to you about is your Come to the Sunshine show. I'm just so interested as a DJ myself, and I know the amount of time it takes just to even prepare, you know, an hour set that you're going to go out and perform, but you do a different set every week. What's it like putting this show together? Uh, what's prep time look like putting this together every week? And how did this come about? How did the opportunity arise? Well, in 2005, I think Rhino put out this compilation, a Nuggets compilation, a single disc that I produced called Come to the Sunshine, another companion one called Hallucinations. And then yeah. in 2006, I had a friend, Christian Hoffman, who had started DJing for an internet radio station called Luxuria. And he said, yeah. I think I can get you a, a spot on there. And so I talked to the guy who was running the station uh, and yeah. he had the compilation. He goes, oh yeah, I'll give you a slot. Show it 15 minutes before your first uh, episode, which was in 2006, 15 minutes before, and I'll teach you everything you need to know about how to be a DJ. So, <laughs> wow. so he showed me how the board worked and having background in engineering, I understood how the board worked and I, you know, made it through this two hour show yeah. and spun 20 singles live back to back yeah. while having a, a chat and, and a webcam and then played sort of a spotlight, which is what I do on most shows, 20 singles from the 60s and then an artist spotlight. Yeah. And uh, it was, the stream went down and there was all this sorts of hellish stuff. But he's like, hey, I made you recording, he handed me the CD. And he said, yeah. you should listen to yourself and how you talk. Yeah. And if you listen to yourself a lot, you're, you're going to get better at what you do. Uh -huh. And that's what I've learned, which is to stop saying, um, ah, uh, you know, and, and all the sort of between things. And I got into also pre-producing the show here in this room uh, where I have all my records and stuff. 
because I like the way the pre-production sounds, but I do a lot of restoration on the 45s and I spend a lot of time with the segues of how the songs feed into one another and the perfect yeah. order in there. And I spend about 24 hours on each two hour episode. Right. So uh, I've been doing it for 15 years. I'm coming up on 200 of these numbered episodes, which are special episodes. And I've done a lot of live things. I'm now with um, Rock and Soul Radio, which is streamed by WFMU as one of yeah. their alternative streams. And yeah. I also run the station with some really talented people, Dave Amels and Mike Sin and Matt Clark and Ken Friedman, who runs WFMU as a whole. So each week yeah. I have a meeting about how the station is running uh, and, and everything else. So I got more involved in it. And before that, I've been okay. with Mom, uh through WFMU, which was great too. And it's been a great experience expanding my family. But the main thing is I do go out when I'm on tour, traveling anywhere and look for 45s. So I'm kind yeah. of feeding this sort of mania of finding weird stuff. I've kept track of every single that I played every song. So I don't yeah. really repeat a lot. And I'm constantly looking for patterns or concepts or ideas to like put things together on the show. And, uh, and I just drive everybody crazy, you know, Sunday. <laughs> you know, cause, um, it's usually the day I'm producing a show for a Monday and mm -hmm. then and all this time uh, in the chat room and promoting the show and getting people to listen. And then people subsequently listen to it a lot more as a podcast. Um, and all the archives are up through WFMU. There's also a big bunch of shows that you can listen to through Podomatic, which um, Apple and a bunch of other people carry. So it's called Come to yeah. the Sunshine. And um, I'm thinking about taking a break when I reach show 200. But there's so many shows people haven't heard. Uh, but I've had to hear all of them. So <laughs> I love doing it. And, uh, and I, I do a little bit of live DJing. I do a few, few live DJ gigs a year, uh, if yeah. that. Uh, and bring my bag of tricks, which is, you know, my box of 45s, my two holder things. And, you know, that's always a lot of fun, but that's my, that's my DJ world. Oh man. I love it, Andrew. Your, your passion for music is, it's just so inspiring. And I just love that our listeners get to hear about all of your experiences and I hope learn from them and just take away that to make a living in music, you got to love it. A, you got to do your homework and your research and you just really need to put in the time to get it to happen. And do all of that again, you know, rinse and repeat. Exactly. And again over and, and over and over. Yes. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Andrew. I appreciate your time. And thanks so much for being on the podcast with us. Well, my pleasure. I don't want to embarrass you in front of all your listeners, but I love you a lot, Dan. And uh, I love you a lot too, man. <laughs> it's great that you're music and that we're still talking about music all these years later. Yes, sir. <laughs> I just think about how Brian Setzer never gave you those private guitar lessons that you... <laughs> <laughs> I tried, but I did get to, uh, my buddy plays in his band these days. And so I had him sign my, one of my, you know, before their first record came out here, they did like two records in, in England. England. Yeah. yeah. My buddy, Sean took it to Brian, got him to sign it. And he wrote to Dan, let's rock Brian Setzer. So I've got my, <laughs> my British Stray Cats import signed by the man himself, which is one That's of my great. prized possessions. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I love you back, and thanks so much for being on the show, Andrew. I appreciate it. Sure. Talk soon. All right, man. Talk soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Crew S Studio. 
and danubeproductions.com. Many thanks to the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate, We Edit Podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Sure, and Avid. Extra special thanks to my brothers from other mothers, Scott Power, Alex Desaire, and Bill Coulter. And last but not least, go check out Soul Picnic, my hand-picked music playlists on notrealart.com. Until next time, this is Dan Ewick signing off.